So, um, when is the last time you guys took an IQ test? Not, not intelligence quotient, but uh, impatience quotient. So, I don't have time because I just found out I only have an hour. I thought I had like an hour and a half. <clears throat> so, I guess I'm going to have to be patient. The Lord wants me to practice what I preach. Um, but in the book, there's, uh, there's a little IQ test for you to take. And I don't have time to read all of them, but let's see if I can pick a few out just to kind of give you a, a sampling. Um, <clears throat> when another motorist cuts me off as I'm driving my car, I become so annoyed that I say something critical, unkind, or nasty to or about that motorist. How often does that happen to you? When I'm trying to be serious <clears throat> and others by their procrastination, hinder me from doing so, I become restless and fuss at those who are slowing me down. When someone on whom I've been waiting 20 or 30 minutes shows up late and does not apologize, I take it personally and assume that he or she does not think I'm important. When people don't treat me with the respect and honor that I believe I deserve, my desire to communicate with them <clears throat> and minister to them is diminished. Oh, here's the short test for your IQ. When I'm tired or sick, I become irritable, grumpy, and short-tempered. Anyway, in the book, there's like 20 questions, and you kind of add up your score and uh, see uh, how much you need the material in the rest of the chapter, basically. Okay, so um, sometimes as a, as a biblical counselor, <clears throat> people will say to us, because we ask them, well, what's the problem and what have you done about the problem? And when we ask them, what have you done about the problem? They say, well, I've done A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I'll, I'll say that. that's good, but what else did you do? I did, I did A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Um, <clears throat> but what about H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P? And I open the Bible and I show them that they haven't done everything. Usually what they try to do is they try to change the way pagans change, the way unbelievers change. We're Christians, we don't break habits, Okay. We don't just put off our sin. We put off our sin, we become renewed in the spirit of our mind, and we put on the biblical alternative to whatever sin we're struggling with. If we're lying, we have to make it our goal to be a teller of the truth. If we're angry, we have to make it our goal to be gentle and kind and tender-hearted and for, for giving. And Every once in a while, they'll say, in answer to my question, tell me what you've done to solve the problem. I've done A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. You've done A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, and it didn't work. That's right. How long uh, did you do it for? Oh, at least two and a half weeks. At which point I open to the book of Hebrews and I read them the verse that says, you have need of endurance. So that after you've done the will of God, when you've done the will of God, like day in and day out for as long as it takes, not just for a day or two or a week or two or even a month or two, after you've done the will of God, then you will receive the promise. So patience, you know, is like a really big deal in the Bible. Um, lots of examples of that. There's the, um, the example of Job. Actually, I'm going to try to give you some definitions, maybe two or three, just depending on how much time we have, because as I said, I have to run through this material. Patience is the ability to accept the difficult situation from the Lord without accusing him of wrongdoing 
or giving him a deadline to remove it. Virtually all of the questions or statements I make in the IQ exam have to do with trials. And the fact of the matter, and you hardly ever see the word patience in the Bible or endurance apart from a trial. It's really interesting. I wish I could go into it, but what's the difference between patience and endurance? Well, there are different words, but the context tells you everything. Basically, you endure trials. You're patient with people. Okay? Anyway, we all do well in the big trials. We think we, think we do, but it's the little trial, you know? Like you're sitting at a red light, and the guy in front of you or the gal in front of you is just kind of lollygagging because she's on her phone or, you know, he's not paying attention, and you've got to wait for the second round because the guy or the gal in front of you, you know, little trials, right? You're trying to go to church, and you're getting everybody in the car as the father, and somebody has to run back into the house to get some implement for her face or hair or something, something that you don't think is necessary, but, you know, there you are. And you're going to have to be patient with the members of your family. So, you know, most of the things, the things that tempt us most often to, pay, to impatience have to do with trials, especially as they result or relate to people. I mean, do you remember how Job responded? I'm not going to take the time to read it, but the word endurance and patience and affliction, suffering actually show up quite a bit in this passage. But you remember Job, the righteous man who feared God, eschewed evil. He responded really, really well at the beginning of his trial, right? Then Job arose, tore his clothes, <clears throat> shaved his head, bowed down on the ground and worshiped and said, naked came I from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. From whence I came, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But then you read the rest of the story, and um, he wasn't quite as patient then as he was, or he wasn't quite as, um, he didn't suffer quite as well in the rest of the chapters as he did in the first chapters. But we look at Job's life, and the first thing we think is, I hate to be that guy. I hate to have to go through what what he's gone through. But you know, he's commended for his patience, And we should really zoom out and look at his life. When you zoom out from the trial and you see what the scripture says, before the trial, he was like super blessed. Then he had the trial. And then after the trial, he was doubly blessed. So he was like a super duper blessed guy. And then he had this very severe trial. But we forget that. We get so caught up in the weeds. No pun intended. You know, the weeds in the... Anyway. Uh, We get so caught up in the weeds that we, um, we forget that he really was blessed by God. The Lord was compassion and full of mercy to Job. So do you interpret your trials the way Job did at the end of chapter 1? Also, interesting passage. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, we find a very familiar but often misrepresented or misinterpreted passage of Scripture. But as it is written, eyes not seen, ears not heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now, it's misinterpreted because most people read this and they think it's talking about heaven. It's not. It's talking about not the great by and by, but the nasty now and now. God has given us through Christ amazing things because the Messiah has come and with that God has... um, Uh, given us all the blessings that we have 
as a result of being in Christ. So it's not about the future heaven, it's about what God has given to us today. But the Old Testament quote is rather interesting. The Messiah had not come yet, and um, the words are changed. Actually, the uh, writer, Paul, in this case, through the inspiration of Scripture, changes a very important word. From the days of old, they have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen a God beside you who acts in behalf of the one who loves him, Uh uh-uh, waits for him. Holy Spirit changed the word wait to love. Why is that? Well, primarily because the Messiah had come, right? And so Isaiah is talking here about looking forward to the Messiah coming. Paul says, Messiah has come, and so he changes the word. But don't miss the analogy here. To love God is to wait for him. You all know 1 Corinthians 13, 5 through 7? What's the first thing on the list? Love is patient. What's the last thing on the list? Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Okay? So this is a big deal in God's economy. Oh, I don't know how many elders, deacons, other church leaders we have here, but the Bible's pretty clear that as leaders, and this goes for parents too, by the way, because we're leaders, right? We need to be patient. Now, this verse is for all of us, not specifically leaders, but it certainly applies to leaders. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak. Be patient. Mac Ruth to me, a long time before you blow it, right? Sort of long-suffering is probably a good English translation. Be patient. Be long-suffering with everyone. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness. Here's our word from this morning, right? With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Uh, Someone asked this morning uh, a question, this afternoon a question about, you know, like are there Bible verses, scripture verses that help you maintain your cool when you're angry at your family members or whoever. This one helps me. And the next one, they kind of go together. And there's, a, there's something common between this verse and one that's just a few chapters away. I'll tell you what that is in a minute. But it's sort of like, you know, I can be in a nya-nya kind of a situation with my wife or one of my kids. But when I remember these two verses, it really helped me to go from this paradigm to this paradigm. Lou, you're the shepherd here. 
Okay, it's not you versus her or you versus them or whatever. You are the shepherd of the family, and your job is to instruct them. I kind of have to take myself out of the argument, remember that I'm the head of the home, and go into shepherding mode. And so when I can remember this verse and the next one, it helps me to get in that posture. Now, the word patient is in this verse. The word patient is in the next verse I'm going to show you. But there's something else that's common to both verses. And I want you to see if you can pick out what it is. It's 2 Timothy 2, 2 through 5. Preach the word. Or for the case of uh, maybe a father, teach the word. Be ready, or a husband, be ready in season, out of season, whether you're in a good mood or not, whether it seems timely or not, be ready at least. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience, macrothemia, and it's actually great patience and with all patience and all instruction. The way the NIV translates it is with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. You see what the other word is that's in both passages? In gentleness, correcting, able to teach. It's instruction. The thing that's common to both passages is that we as leaders must patiently instruct people who um, are difficult to handle, right? We have to be patient even when we are instructing people because there are people in our lives that um, are difficult. And when you're in ministry, you know that God calls you to deal with difficult people. And when you're a parent, you know that routinely one child is more difficult than another. So these verses help me. Perhaps they will help you as well. Communication issues associated with impatience. Interrupting others when they're speaking. Now, now think of your last conflict, okay? Or think of the person that you're in conflict with the most. For most of you, that's going to be a spouse or a child. Interrupting, and and you guys, think about your parents, okay? Interrupting others when they're speaking, not waiting until others have finished expressing their thoughts before I express mine. Jumping to hasty and unfounded conclusions, not waiting until I have collected all of the necessary information to come to a biblical conclusion. Jumping to motives, uh, judging, sorry, judging people's motives. Not waiting until I have asked my victim what his real motives are before I accuse him of having improper ones. Demanding immediate answers to difficult questions. Not waiting until those I question have had sufficient time to consider their responses. Pressuring people to quickly finish what they're saying, not waiting until others have finished expressing their thoughts before I express mine. Finishing others' sentences, not waiting until others have finished expressing their thoughts before I express mine. 
taking vengeance verbally. Now, we talked a little bit about vengeance. We're going to talk more about vengeance on Monday, actually. But look at it this way. You know, the Bible says, I'll go into it on Monday, but avenge not yourself, for it is written, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is something you're not allowed to take. God says, it's mine, and I will execute my judgment in my time. And when you prematurely execute your own vengeance on someone, you're really being impatient. You're saying, yeah, I know God will deal with you, but I'm going to deal with you first because I don't want to wait for him to zap you or whatever he's going to do to you. Not waiting for God to execute his justice in his time. Patience is the ability to endure tribulation without resorting to sinful means of deliverance. Um, In the book, I talk about how David um, was urged several times by his men to deal with Saul by himself, and he consistently wouldn't do it. Sometimes when we're in a trial, we can feel trapped, sort of like we're in a box. And with every day that goes by, the box seems to become more and more unbearable. Occasionally, it even appears that the box is shrinking and it will soon be crushed by the ever-tightening walls. And so, again, patience and endurance usually involves trials of one kind or another. And we're in a box. We feel it that way. And it seems like the box is getting smaller and smaller. Well, 1 Corinthians 10.13 says something really interesting about the box. He, it says... Um, there is no temptation or trial that's overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Basically, whatever you're going through, lots and lots of other people, lots of other Christians have uh, gone through, even though your circumstances might be somewhat unique, there's nothing new under the sun. The trial that you're going through is the kind of trial that lots of other Christians have gone through. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he'll make a way to escape that you may be able to endure it. And so what this says for the Christians, now this doesn't apply to people who are not saved, but what this says to the Christians is that God is limiting your trial in two different ways. He limits it in scope. He's, it may feel otherwise sometimes, but he knows how much you can handle. He will not allow you to be t- tempted beyond what you are able. It's limited in scope. He's not going to give you as a Christian more than he's going to give you the grace to handle one way or the other. And it's limited in duration. He will make a way to escape that you may be able to endure the trial. Now, he doesn't say how he's going to get you out of the box. He's got lots of options. He can push a button and trap the all open. You know, he can give the word and a um, helicopter will come along with his, like a big electric can opener and tear the top of the box. He can snap his fingers and the walls will disappear. Or push a button and they'll, go, they'll, they'll fall down or, you know like the walls of Jericho. He's got lots of ways to get you out of the box. But you have got to, and yes, for some trials, we won't get out of the box until we we see the Lord, right? But for most of us, most of the trials, God, that we go through, at least the the small ones, are relatively short-lived, right? Like the psalmist said, I would have fainted if I hadn't believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, the question is this. When we're in the box, am I going to patiently wait for God to get me out of this box, or am I going to impatiently pull out my sinful little pocket knife and attempt to tunnel my way out of the box before God 
through righteous means, extricates me in his own way, in his own time. I mean, some of you have to deal with difficult people, and it's hard. But you've got to be careful that, you know, you don't prematurely, you know, try to um, get out of the relationship other than with biblical means. Now, God may give you biblical means, and sometimes he's provided biblical means, and you don't know what they are, and that's why it's good to get counsel. But the fact of the matter is we may not sin in our attempts to try to get out from under the pressure that God sovereignly puts us in. Common um, communication issues associated with impatience. There are several of them in the book, but I want to talk about one in particular. And that has to do with prematurely terminating the conflict due to an unwillingness to tolerate the sinful attitudes of your opponent. There's a right way to do it, and there's a wrong way to do it. And so, what are some of the things we're tempted to say to ourselves when we're in a difficult conflict? Impatient thoughts for that short-circuit conflict resolution. I don't have to tolerate this any longer. I don't have to put up with. The next one is tolerance, the fourth one we're going to talk about in a minute. You may have to for at least a little longer. Jesus said, how long must I put up with this twisted and perverse generation? He can't say that to me. I'm done here. How dare she talk to me that way? He's not listening to reason, so why invest any more of my time? I don't have any more time to argue with her. I've got more important things to do. He's only interested in expressing his own opinion. He's a fool, so I'm not going to argue with him anymore. There's no hope. She'll never admit that she's wrong. God's going to have to show him I'm tired of trying. Who said this? I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Apostle Paul to King Agrippa in Acts 26.3. Now, what's wrong with many of these um, statements is not that they're trying to get out of a difficult situation. It's that they're impatiently trying to get out. They just want to hit the first you know, exit button rather than trying to patiently see if there are other options, other ways to ice the cake or for you fishermen, to other ways, different ways to skin the catfish. More patient thoughts that encourage conflict resolution. I'm going to give this conflict at least two more rounds, two more exchanges. Or uh, there's got to be a, w- a way to help him see things differently. God has been patient with my sin. I'm going to be patient with him. Just because his attitude stinks doesn't mean his reasoning is wrong. God calls me to use great patience when I'm in a conflict. And sometimes we can just talk to God. Lord, help me to know how much longer to stay in this fight and how and when to terminate it politely and how to give him a warning before I do so. You know, God gives people warning, right? Right? He gives people warning sometimes, and sometimes it's appropriate before we exit stage left to warn a person that, you know, they're not communicating according to biblical principle if you're talking to a Christian or they're, uh, they're 
communicating if they're not believers in a way that you're not going to be able to tolerate much longer. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't ever prematurely terminate um, a conflict. Quite the contrary. The Bible says, don't answer a fool according to his folly or you'll be just like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves lest he walk away wise in his own eyes. So there is a time and a place to do it. It's just a matter of, am I going, at the first sign of trouble, am I going to exit stage right, or am I going to slow down, think it through, and figure out if there's a more patient biblical way to turn this thing around, or even a more biblical way to put the ball in that person's court before I walk away. Make sense? Again, there's a lot more real good and practical stuff like that in the book. I just, you know, don't have time. Okay. Last quality is forbearance, pay, uh, it, uh, to, to be tolerant of people. So yeah, in the book, there's, a, there's another little test for forbearance. Going to give you some quick definitions of what it means to forbear. Now we're doing for time, okay? Number one. Forbearance is the ability to recognize and appreciate the fact that God has made each person different. We quoted this verse or part of it before. Who makes you to differ from another? What do you have that you've never received? Who makes you to differ? God did, is the expected reply. The Lord has given each of us, right, different abilities, different skills, different gifts, different ministries, different backgrounds, different tastes, different skin colors, different genders, even different body shapes. Forbearance recognizes and accepts this fact as a good thing. Imagine how boring life would be if everyone was just like you. I mean, if you and your spouse agreed about everything, one of you wouldn't be necessary. (laughs) Oliver grew up on a farm in the country over 25 miles from the thriving, thriving metropolis where his wife, Lisa, was raised. Okay, so let's contextualize this. What is the, uh, what is the most rural uh, town within, I don't know, 40 miles of Seattle? Like, you know, where the chickens and the pigs and the... Carnation? Okay, so he's from, you know, he's from, Oliver is from Carnation or Monroe. And she's from, like, what's the glitziest, richest, wealthiest part of Seattle? What's the wealthiest neighborhood in Seattle? Okay, so she lives in Medina. His father raised pigs and chickens and came to town twice a month for the purpose of getting supplies. Her father was a big city lawyer who entertained people in his home regularly. Oliver's family was accustomed to going to bed at 9 o'clock because they had to get up with the chickens and the pigs and the cows. Lisa, because they entertained so much, would routinely retire for the evening at 11 o'clock. Is it a sin to go to sleep at 9 o'clock? Is it a sin to go to sleep at 11 o'clock? No. But they're going to have conflicts... Did I hear some murmuring about it being a sin to go to sleep at 11 o'clock? <laughs> Legalists everywhere. Anyway, 
Oliver did chores on the farm and at home many hours each day. She had a maid and was required to do little more than make her bed and keep her clothes off the bedroom floor. Oliver's family had to make do with very little. They bought their clothes at Walmart. Is it a sin to buy your clothes at Walmart? Drove late model, you know, Fords or whatever. Never took vacations. Reupholstered their furniture every eight to ten years. Is that wrong? No. Lisa's family bought their clothing at Brooks Brothers, Neiman Marcus, expensive specialty shops. We have a guy in our church that works for a company. He does uh, tailor-made clothes for men. It's amazing. I said, how much is that shirt you're wearing? He said, well, if you bought it from me, it would cost $400. But it's tailor-made. Anyway, her family drove brand-new Mercedes and BMWs, vacationed frequently at their beach and lake houses. Routinely, what they would do, they would routinely go through a couple of rooms of their mansion every year, take the furniture in it, give it to somebody in the church, and they would buy new furniture for one or two rooms of their home every year. Is it a sin to do that if you have the money to do it? No, of course not. Oliver loved sports. He was on the varsity football, baseball, basketball team at local public high school. Lisa went to a prestigious private school, including several in parts of Europe, had no interest in sports but loved the arts. He loved to ski and go to movies and car races. She loved to dance, go to the theater and the symphony. He liked American popular and jazz music. She liked classical music and opera. She spoke five languages. He barely spoke English. <laughs> Suffice it to say that they came from very different backgrounds. And they were bound to have many conflicts in their marriage, as I alluded to before, not because one was more of a sinner than the other, but because they're so different. And different is okay, right? What time would they go to sleep in the evening? Where would they purchase their clothing? What kind of car were they going to buy, right? You know, she wanted a Mercedes, or she wanted, a, let's say, a Volvo CX90 to drive around Seattle in with the kids. What did he want? What did he want? He's a farmer. He wanted a pickup, right? Where would they go on a date? She wanted to go to the opera or the theater, and he wanted to go to the rodeo or the tractor pull. Where would they go on vacation? Where would they live? What kind of house would they buy? How would they furnish and decorate it? How much domestic help would they have? Attempts to resolve these normal marital issues would be more difficult for Oliver and Lisa than for many couples whose differences were not pronounced. But forbearing love can make the difference. That's the idea. The word literally means to put up with, right? We have to put up with stuff. Well, I'll say more about that in a minute. Number two, forbearance is the ability to distinguish sin issues from non-sin issues. This is really important. So, um, I guess you guys are, uh, I guess you guys are Seahawks fans, right? What's your baseball team? Mariners, that's right. What, what? Are you not? Okay. So, what if, what if I said to you, uh, you know, I'm a Falcons fan. I'm from Atlanta now, so I root for the Falcons. Boom. Or worse, I'm really from New York, so like I'm a diehard Yankee fan. 
Well, that's it. You're never coming back here to speak again. How can anybody profess to be a Christian have anything to do with the likes of, well, he's not around anymore. I was going to say George Steinbrenner. But the fact of the matter is, it's not wrong for me to be a Falcons fan. It's not wrong for you to be a Mariners fan or a Seahawks fan, right? It's not a sin. And so we have to put up with things that are non-sin issues, but we can't make things a sin if the Bible doesn't say it's a sin. Again, I quoted this verse before, Hebrews 5.14, solid meat, strong food belongs, uh, yeah, solid food belongs to those who are mature, to those who by reason of use have their senses, their consciences exercised to discern the difference between good and evil. Now, there's a real problem with confusing the two. The Bible says, woe unto those who call evil good, but it also says, woe unto those who call good evil. You may not judge other people to be doing things that are sinful if the Bible doesn't say it's sinful, right? Look at this. Do not speak evil. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother or judges his brother, again, in non-sin issues, speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if, you're, if you judge the law, you're not a, a, a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Let me stop right there. So, you say, I can't believe anybody root for the Yankees. Was it wrong to root for the Yankees? Well, I don't know. It should be. <laughs> yeah, but it's not in the Bible, is it? You see, you judge me because I'm doing something that's not a sin. You're judging the Bible. Worse than that, perhaps, you're judging the lawgiver who wrote the Bible. There is one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbors? So it's a pretty bad thing to slam the gavel down with your mouth or even in your mind and judge someone to be sinning when they're not sinning. That's legalism. You're not only judging your brother, you're judging the Bible and you're judging wrongly God who didn't put your favorite scruple in his holy book. I mean, think about how bad that is. So that's why we have to know the difference between right and wrong because we have to put up with stuff, tolerate stuff that irritates us, that bugs us, that we wish were different in the other person, but at the end of the day, it's not a sin. So we talk to them about it. They may be willing to change or modify it somehow, but at the end of the day, we don't have a case, and so we just simply have to put up with it. Forbearance is a willingness to allow others the freedom to express their own unique lifestyle within the framework of Scripture without passing judgment on them or holding them in contempt. What do I mean when I speak of unique lifestyles? We each have our own style of living, a bundle of behaviors, if you please, that set us apart and distinguish us from all of those around us. Some lifestyles are inherently unbiblical such as lifestyle of sexual immorality or hedonism. Others are acceptable within the framework of Scripture. So, you know, I don't know what it's like here. I can imagine, but, you know, in our church at home, we got lots of different kinds of Christians with lots of different lifestyles. You know, we have, we have Christians that are very wealthy. They drive, you know, they're very, very wealthy, and they drive very expensive cars. They have 16 cars. Well, not, maybe not 16. They live in opulent homes. You know, 
It's okay for them to do that. And we've got people that are not quite so wealthy. We have people who come to church dressed formally. We have people who come to church dressed informally, right? Some people who drive one type of car, shop at one place, shop at another place. We all have our own unique lifestyles. And as long as we all stay within the confines of this book, we have to tolerate each other. We have to accept each other, right? Because there are lots of different kinds of people in God's church, And unless what they're doing is inherently biblical, we must love them and accept them and receive them and not judge them. The passage that I really wanted to mention, I mentioned in the book, actually, let me do this. When you judge things to be sinful that are not clearly delineated as such, at least in principle in the scriptures, You wrongly judge not only your brother who did the misjudged deed, but also the Bible for not condemning the deed and the author of the Bible who apparently forgot to put it in his book. Um, Another passage that speaks to this issue, giving other people the freedom, is Romans 14. I'm going to read the first six verses. Notice that there are two types of Christians identified and two sins to avoid. Now, except the one who is, now you're going to look for two different types of Christians, right? Except the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats regard with contempt he who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. He who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Okay, did you catch the two different types of people? First, there's the Christian who is weak in faith. We sometimes refer to this person, as Paul does elsewhere, as the weaker brother. His conscience is weak. That is, his conscience is not yet programmed biblically. And as a result, he has scruples about things um, that the Bible doesn't say are wrong because he's perhaps a new or immature Christian. On the other hand, there's the person who has faith. Paul later goes on to refer to this type of person, and this is something we all should aspire to, as strong, right? You have the weaker brother and you have the stronger brother. Now, as to those special instructions to each one, the weaker brother is not to judge the stronger brother, and the stronger brother is not to regard with contempt the brother who doesn't eat. In other words, the person with the scruple are not to say or even think, how can he do such a thing? Doesn't he care about what the Lord thinks? And the stronger brother, who is to avoid holding his brother in contempt, ought not to reason like this about his weaker brother. Why doesn't he grow up? I hate that I have to limit my freedom in Christ when I'm around him so I offend his unbiblical scruples. This passage speaks to this. We have to be careful that we know what the difference is between right and wrong, and we give other people the freedom to develop their own unique lifestyles within the context of Scripture. Forbearance is the ability in close relationships to distinguish swing issues from fire issues. 
When Sophie was a little girl, my in-laws got her a toddler swing. You all know what a toddler swing is? It's a swing that has a harness in it, and child kind of sits in there and locks in it, and she or he can swing pretty safely without having a whole lot of supervision. So let's suppose we were invited over to some friend's house after church one Sunday. <clears throat> and uh, as we pull into the driveway, Sophie says to me, oh, daddy, there's a swing set. She's two years old now, right? Two, three years old. Oh, daddy, there's a swing set there. Can I swing on the swing? And I say to her, well, yeah, we can swing on the swing later, but let's go in and um, you know, have, um, have some food and visit with our brothers and sisters. And, and af- afterwards, after we eat and spend some time talking, I'll swing you on the swing. So we do that. Maybe I forget about it, and she reminds me about the swing. So I say, oh, yeah, honey, let's go out and swing for a few minutes. So we get out to the swing, and lo and behold, it was an adult swing, and it was higher than I thought it was, and it didn't have a safety seat on it. It, didn't have, it wasn't a toddler seat. It didn't have a harness to lock her in. And I say to her, oh, honey, this is not the right kind of swing. Um, it's not safe like your swing is, but, you know, we'll be going home in about an hour and uh, maybe less, and when we get home, Daddy will swing you on your swing. She had this way of, you know, pulling on my jacket or going like this, which meant that she wanted me to pick her up. So I pick her up, say, she says, oh, but Daddy, I've been waiting for two hours, and you promised me that I could swing on the swing. But Daddy, you could hold me in place, and I wouldn't fall. And even if I did, you'd be there to catch me. <laughs> she really was that loquacious, by the way. Anyway, so I think to myself, okay, fine. She really wants to do this, and if, uh, if it means that much to her, then, um, then I guess I can hold her in place. Basically, a swing issue is an issue. It's not a sin issue now. Okay, we're talking about non-sinful issues. A swing issue is an issue that one could go both ways in more easily. I, can, I would prefer to go this way, but you know, I, I, if it's that important to you, I'll go your way. So basically, a swing issue means that one can easily go both ways on the matter. I may prefer to go in one direction. The person with whom I'm in conflict may prefer to go another. But because I'm a forbearing person, I'll swing with it, as we say. If it means that much to you, I'm willing to yield my personal desires to yours in order to prefer you in honor and pursue peace with you, a la Romans 12.10 and Romans 14.19. Pursue things which make for peace and building up each other. A fire issue is an issue, although not necessarily a sin, would be very difficult for me to agree to do. Perhaps it's a matter of personal preference or taste or enjoyment, but for whatever reason, I find the matter objectionable. It's not that I, refused, I would refuse to do it if I absolutely had to, but I really would rather not. So, another little silly scenario. We're out in the backyard the next day, and I'm <clears throat> burning leaves in the backyard. Got permission from the uh, fire department. And so... Let's say Gabby, Sophie comes up to me and she tugs on my jacket and does this and I, I lift her up. And she says, Daddy, can I play in the fire? <laughs> and I say, can you do what? I want to play in the fire. Honey, you can't play in the fire. It's hot. Yeah, but Daddy, it's so pretty. All those 
colors and it's making all of that crackly noise. Can I please play in the fire again? I, absolutely not. You can't play in the fire. Now, again, it's not a sin issue. But the point is there are some things that are really difficult. And so ideally, the person for whom it's a swing issue ought to be willing to swing towards the person for whom it's a fire issue to prefer the other person. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Yeah, but everything's a fire issue for my husband, or everything's a fire issue for my wife. What do I do then? Well, what you have to do is swing with it for a while. You swing with it first time, swing with it second time, you swing with it three, four, five times, whatever. And then, when it becomes a pattern of the other person not being willing to swing, not being forbearing, not being willing to yield, being selfish, whatever, you know, one of dozens of biblical adjectives or descriptive terms you want to use, then it becomes a sin issue. And then you can talk to the other person as though it were a sin issue. Honey, do you remember two weeks ago, or remember last month it was our anniversary and I wanted to go to this restaurant and you wanted to go to that one? Yeah. Where do we end up going? Oh, we end up going to mine. Okay. And then the week after that, uh, we were buying uh, a new refrigerator and I wanted the stainless steel one and you wanted the white one and which way do we go? And then last week, and then yesterday, and then today. And so when you can establish that there's a pattern of the other person being selfish, then you can make the case that it really is a sin issue and it's no longer a sin issue. But in the short term, probably the wisest thing to do in most cases is just to swing with it, as we say. Oh, yeah, I've got it up here. I'm sorry. Okay, number five, forbearance is the ability to put up with the idiosyncratic swing issues, and this is, where, this is what the word forbearance literally means, to put up with. It's the ability to put up with the idiosyncratic swing issues that you wish were different in another and sacrifice your own desires for his benefits. Now again, idiosyncrasies, foibles, peculiarities, Things that the other person has that make him or her different, but at the end of the day are not sin. That's what we're talking about. One time only do I know where this word was used about sin, and this is the one I alluded to earlier, where Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and um, his disciples couldn't cast out the demon of the boy who was possessed. And... He says something really interesting. He says, how long must I put up with this twisted and perverse generation? It's the only place I know where the word is used in in context of sin. So sometimes we really do have to put up with, and I hope to talk about that in a minute, we sometimes do have to put up with the sinful behaviors of certain types of people, Christians, but largely it's talking about uh, non-sinful issues. Put up with those issues. The Bible has much to say about yielding certain, uh, yielding our personal desires for the good of others. Let's see what I have here. We who are strong are to bear with the weakness of those who are without strength and not just to please ourselves. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greek or the church of God, just as I also please all things, all men, in all things. Not please my own prophet, but the prophet of the many, or not seeking my own prophet, but the prophet of many, so that they may be saved. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind 
in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And I think you're familiar with that passage. So one of the things that God calls us to put up with, again, are these idiosyncrasies. Here's another interesting verse. Um, Yeah, let me read this. This has to do with the oddities, the peculiarities that are irksome in our fellow sinners, and they, they don't exactly mesh with us. But the Bible says that there are certain people who are at least temporarily more peculiar or weaker, weaker than others. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need to be, have no need of it, have no need to be treated so specially. <clears throat> but God has so composed the, body, composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the members that lack, so that there be no division in the body, but that all the members may take care, have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members are honored, honored with it. And then I think there's one more here. Maybe. No, let me read it to you. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. So part of a person's idiosyncratic differences have to do with his internal thought processes his preferences, his opinions, his beliefs, his desires that are peculiar to him or her. And this is a big part of what I mean when I speak of putting up with idiosyncratic swing issues. As we reveal our hearts in conflict, uh, the things that we value and the things that the other person values become apparent. And so we should, even though we disagree, when the other person is expressing his heart or her heart and explaining what they really value, even though it's different than what you value, we ought to be a learner and try to understand where they're coming from as much as we can. Forbearance is the ability to respond lovingly to the immaturity of others without lowering ourselves to their standard of immaturity. At this very moment, Every believer in this room, every believer all over the world is in a state of flux, right? We are all growing Christians, hopefully. Right? We're being transformed as we behold the image of the Lord <clears throat> in the word of God. We are being transformed into his image from glory to glory. What's that about? Well, that screen is white. But if we, if we just remove the PowerPoint presentation and just shown the lamp on it, it would be right. It would be more glorious, right? It would go from, you know, from no ANSI illumination to 1,000 to 2,000, right? One level of brightness, one level of glory to another. One level of spiritual maturity to another. It's progressive sanctification. To another level of spiritual maturity to another level of spiritual... We're all in flux. We're all in process. And if a burning person realizes, you know, I have a ways to grow. You know, I, I struggled last year with this thing, and now thankfully God has given me the, the victory. Again, it gets back to that idea of meekness that we said it doesn't have this holier-than-thou attitude. And then finally, 
And we're going to probably have to open up for questions here because we're about out of time, yeah. Um, finally, forbearance is the ability to demonstrate biblical love to other believers even when they're struggling with sin. So as I said, sometimes we have to put up with sin. When? When is it, poss- when is it right to put up with sin? What do you think? No, it's not always. Sometimes when someone sins, you have to, I mean, you have to put up with the sense that, you know, you have to endure it while they're repenting, but put up with it in, in the sense of um, saying something, right? At the very least, it's proper when we know that the other person who is sinning is both aware of it and is working on correcting the problem. My kids have struggles, you know, and I know they're aware of it. And I know they're working on it. I don't, you know, shine a flashlight on it every time they, they sin again because they know it. They're working on it. And I just have to put up with it until, you know, they're able to deal with it. And it's especially true for people who are trying to overcome years of life-dominating sins. It's probably also necessary to show forbearance to two other types of people who may be at a slight disadvantage in regards to their own sanctification. First, new converts. Those who, because they are still immature in the faith, have not yet become fully acquainted with the sanctification process. And the other category would be weak believers. Those who, for feebleness, are slow to comprehend the sanctification process. All right, well, in the book, I give some guidelines for how to become more forbearing, but um, which is it for you? Pride, anger, impatience, intolerance. I mean, what is it that the Lord really wants you to work on? Of the four, like, which is the one character flaw that's messing up your relationships that's probably contributing more to, to the conflict. Yeah, well, I, I'm just being, you probably should just work on one, or the most two. I, I, I mean, you know, if God, seriously, this, this, is, this is where, really, this is where we have to be patient with each other. You know, like, what happened? <clears throat> we have to be patient with each other. Is that me? You said, okay, okay. So I'll be patient with you. No. So... <clears throat> Um, you know, I mean, really, if God said to you, okay, brother, okay, son or daughter, um, here are all the sins you've got to work on. Uh, you've got four weeks to get it in line. I mean, like, what would you do, right? I mean, how many, how many sins can you focus on? I mean, not that you're going to ignore everything else. You look at them in your peripheral vision, but in terms of focusing like a, like a laser, like, how many of them can you work on at one time? So I would recommend you just talk to your spouse or to your kids or to your parents and ask them, okay, of the four, what do I need to work on the most, right? And then together with them, come up, you know, confess it, acknowledge it, ask for forgiveness, and then work on a plan and maybe even ask them to hold you accountable. You want me to ask my kids to hold me accountable? Maybe. I don't know if it's, I think it's tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm going to be doing a chapter from my book. I've got a book for teenagers, by the way. Nobody knows about this. Even your pastor didn't know about it. I've got a book for teenagers. It's called Keeping Your Cool. Yeah. And it's a teenager's guide to dealing with anger and the things that go along. I have a chapter in the book called How to Talk to Your Parents About Their Sin. 
yeah. And, 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 and you guys need to read it because you want to make sure you agree with what I'm telling your kids to do. But like, as I'll explain to you, in biblical times, you know, Jesus was a teenager, but he wasn't an adolescent. He didn't have, a, you know, nine or ten, or as it is now until you're 26, however many years of protracted period of adolescence. He was a child one day, went through a rite of passage, and he basically was treated as an adult. And so, and so our kids ought to be able to talk to us about our sin. But there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. So I'll close with this because it's kind of humorous. And then we'll... Did I answer your question? Yeah, I, I would recommend one. If you're Superman, you want to do two, knock yourself out. <laughs> so my kids, we, we encouraged our kids, you know, from, from childhood, Timothy knew the scriptures, from infancy. And so from a very babe. So, you know, we taught our girls the scriptures way before they could read. And they knew the scriptures pretty well. I mean, they knew the scriptures well enough to understand them and to use them. So Sophia was two years old. She was almost three. And I was laying in bed. And uh, Sophia was next to me. And Kim was in the master, master bathroom. And she said, Lou, would you help me find something? I don't know, some implement for her face or hair or something. And I sighed. I said, oh. Sophia, two years old looked at me and said, Daddy, you should do all things without complaining or arguing. <laughs> a few weeks later, she had just turned three. We were in a restaurant, and the waitress comes along and, you know, takes the order, and she gives Sophia uh, one of those placemats to color on. And so she starts coloring. She's three years old. And uh, her, her counselor father, who should have known that developmentally she probably wasn't able to color inside the line, picked up a crayon and began to try to teach her how to color inside the line. Well, it was all fine and good, but what happened is, you know, it was much bigger than this piece of paper, but little by little, my hand was encroaching upon her space, and at one point, my hand was over the, the entire um, placemat, and there was no room for her to write. And she looked at me and she said, Daddy... The Bible says, do not forget to do good and to share. <laughs> Wasn't barely three years old. Twice, within a few week periods of time, she successfully convicted her college-educated father of sin. So anyway, you know, you want your kids to listen to you? Well, you need to listen to them. You guys have to do it. Respect. Get the book and read it. It's really good. The name of the, the, name of the book is called Keeping Your Cool. Anyway, I'll give you some more from that book tomorrow. We talk about, is, am I doing that? Is that what, am I talking about? That? What does it mean to be a teen? Is that what we're doing tomorrow? Well, counseling teenage, what am I doing? Yep, yeah. Okay, yeah. So anyway, there'll be more of that stuff tomorrow. Okay, any questions? All right, well, let me pray. Father, thank you for this passage. <clears throat> thank you for all there is. And Lord, you know, I just really scratched the surface. There's so much in here. Um, <clears throat> and Lord, we can't listen to a message like this without really being convicted six ways to Sunday. And Lord, as I said, um, we all struggle in varying degrees with these, uh, with these, uh, these character flaws. We all have to work on several of them, really. And I just pray that your spirit would put his finger on the one or perhaps two that we need to work on the most. Then you'd give us the wisdom and the grace to little by little, day by day, with the assistance of our families, perhaps, 
um, put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of our mind, and be um, and put on the new man that is created in the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.